Welcome back to the 182nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a endorsement coming in Iowa for Ron DeSantis, a interesting story talking about the uh, turn against J.K. Rowling and why some of the generation has actually turned against her. Maybe there's some hidden insights there as well as an interesting article talking about student debt relief and how Biden hasn't come through. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. Can a win for DeSantis in Iowa, so maybe you've uh, been let in a little bit, DeSantis is getting a new endorsement in Iowa from a particular governor of the state, Miss Kim Reynolds. We'll get into that story here in a second. But could that lead to him winning? And could a win in Iowa change the trajectory of the primary? Because we already know that Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, but probably Nikki Haley, is going to lock in South Carolina. Uh, we're looking at New Hampshire. DeSantis is doing okay there. Christie is doing okay there. Trump is doing okay there. So imagine that DeSantis gets Iowa, Nikki Haley gets South Carolina, and maybe DeSantis or Christie gets New Hampshire instead of Trump. Imagine all of those states go against Trump at the very beginning, and then it kind of, what's the word I'm looking for, puts a chink in the armor of uh, Teflon Don, of undefeatable Donald Trump. Is there a way that this could change the trajectory of the primary, and maybe another person could rise out of the field? Toss your comments down there in the comment section. Love to hear what everybody has to say. Am I out of my mind? Am I right on point? Who knows? Who knows? All right, let's jump to our first article that comes from National Review. And I've already teased it enough. So, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds to endorse DeSantis for president. So, for a while there, Ms. Reynolds said she was going to you know, stay above the fray. She was not going to endorse anybody. She was going to platform all of the candidates so that the Iowans could make up their mind. But now we're getting a little bit closer. The primary, or sorry, the caucus in Iowa is coming up here in January. So she started to say, okay, I'm going to solidify my support behind one of these candidates because I think that they may have Iowa in mind. They spent a lot of time there. And DeSantis has most definitely spent a lot of time in Iowa. Quote, Republican Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds will endorse Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for president, securing him some leverage in the state where he is currently behind former President Donald Trump in polling and where the first caucus for the GOP nomination will be held. The planned endorsement will happen on Monday at a rally in Des Moines. Sources close to both governors told NBC News the DeSantis campaign has invested more resources and energy to the Hawkeye State. It solidified the first major ad buy in October, setting aside $2 million worth of airtime starting in mid-November and running through January 15th, the caucuses, NBC News reported. A third of the campaign staff were relocated from Tallahassee, Florida, to Ohio, Iowa in October. And yes, it, it did happen. You know, when I'm recording this, it was Monday yesterday. And as far as I could see, everything went to plan. So this is a big 
endorsement for Ron DeSantis in Iowa because Kim Reynolds does have the love of a lot of her citizenry. I mean, she was put in there. She's been a very pro, pro-conservative uh, not just leader, but also legislator. And when I say that, yes, she doesn't legislate herself, but she's tried to push a lot of her own initiatives, uh, some more school choice sort of things, and a lot of the Iowan people really, really like her. So this is a huge endorsement for Ron DeSantis, especially in a state that's caucuses rather than primaries, because it's not just raw votes. It's the people get together and they have to decide, try to convince one another to switch sides as people become less relevant as they become less likely to be the winner, they kind of leave their camp and go join other people's camps. So with something like this, and now you can have in the back of your pocket as a negotiating tool when you're at the caucus, you say, but hey, I know you may not like this policy, but Kim Reynolds, she endorsed him. And she obviously knows what she's talking about. She's done some things right. And DeSantis has been putting in the, the legwork here in Iowa. So if DeSantis has a strong showing in Iowa in the caucuses, I think it will you know, shape how everybody's viewing this race. A lot of people have been saying, oh, well, look at his national polls. And DeSantis has always hit back with, <clears throat> excuse me, this is a state-by-state state affair, okay? This is something where the national polls don't matter as much as the polls in each state. And if we can focus in on them and get the crucial votes while we're there, then, hey, that's what we want to do. And that's how we're going to do it. And then also think about the momentum. When somebody comes out of a win in a primary, I mean, Ted Cruz won Iowa in uh, 2016, and Trump still won the election overall, but the field was a little bit more packed at that point. There's no doubt about that. But also the momentum that builds, which is, like I said earlier, there's a chip into the Teflon Don. Okay, Don isn't the... Uh, the one and only. He is not the presumed nominee. It's, oh, there's actually some challenge here. People will get their, you know, a little bit more, what's the word? They can have something else to associate with Ron DeSantis besides his governing, which is, oh, he just won Iowa. Like, that's a that's a pretty big deal. So he could, if he does it right, especially coming out of this debate in, what, I believe it's in two days now, he could really shape this up to be an election that is going to be really, really beneficial for him. Now, will it happen? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, he may still lose the caucuses. There may be enough Donald Trump support. But when you have the person, Kim Reynolds, saying, hey, I know you trusted me. You put me in office, and I got all these great things done and that you guys really love. I know you trust me. I love you guys as my voters. And I'm telling you, the best person to be the presidential candidate is Ron DeSantis. Us Iowans will love Ron DeSantis. That's going to have some sway. And I think that it will have enough that DeSantis will have an opening to win Iowa. He just has to keep things rolling, to keep the ground game strong, and not make any major flubs before January. But that's almost you know, two and a little... No, it's probably more like three months away at this point. So come on. It's politics. Anything, I repeat, anything could happen. So what is the... Uh, how should I say this? How How is the Iowan populace feeling about Trump? Or, you know, what is the sentiment and the uh, difference between Trump and DeSantis in Iowa? Quote, in Iowa, Trump leads DeSantis by 27 points, according to a recent NBC News slash Des Moines Register slash, wow, okay, there's lots of slashes here, Mediacom poll conducted October 22nd through Thursday. <clears throat> DeSantis is also tied for second place 
with former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. The survey showed that the majority of likely caucus goers, 54%, said that they could be convinced to change their nominee selection, but 41 had locked in their choices. Even before he announced his bid for president, DeSantis received endorsements amounting to more than a third of the Republicans in the state legislature, more than any GOP candidate received in 2016. DeSantis spent a lot of time interacting with voters in Iowa at various functions and fundraising events. As of November, DeSantis has made Iowa his most visited state, stopping at 87 counties out of 99, NBC News added. So, hey, that, that's a lot of ground game. That is a lot of retail politics. That is a lot of getting your face out in front of the voter. And I don't know if it's necessarily helping as much as he would want, considering the poll that has Trump up by 27 points. I mean, think about it this way. Retail politics serves a few different purposes. One of those purposes is to get out there and show the people you care. But the other purpose is to get out there so people know you. And guess what? Trump doesn't really have a problem being known. Everybody, he, they, he is a known quantity in this primary election. And he's been to Iowa before. He's gotten out in front of them and he's given them the time of day. Now, he's not doing it as much, which, like I said, is one part of it showing the voters that you still care about them, that you're still willing to go into Iowa. And he hasn't done it as much as DeSantis, but DeSantis isn't just doing it to let people understand that he cares. He's also doing it to really build name recognition. And when Trump has already done that half of the battle, it, it will be interesting to see if DeSantis has done enough to overcome that name ID that he has, and he's talked to enough people and shown that he's cared enough in order to how should I say, catapult him to the top. But with 51% of people saying they're willing to have their minds changed, which, I mean, going into a caucus, that's the whole point. You negotiate, you work, you try to convince other people why your candidate's the best. There still could be a massive shift, but it will be split between the other candidates, and that's why DeSantis is still going to have a hard time. Hopefully the field kind of narrows a little bit going into the caucuses after this upcoming debate. So there's one last quote. It's a really quick one. Quote, Reynolds' imminent announcement presents a pivot for her pre from her previous approach of treating the GOP 2024 contenders at, with similar enthusiasm, giving most a platform to make their case to voters in her state. In July, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott participated in a town hall in Iowa with Reynolds. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy spoke at Reynolds' fair side chat at the Iowa State Fair in August, end quote. So this is why I think it's even more important. Because she was staying out of it, because she was trying to give room for all of these candidates to say what they needed to say to the Iowa people, and now she's stepping in and saying, no, this is the right man for us, I think it will carry a little bit more weight. It shows, hey, I'm willing to be impartial, but when it really comes down to it, at the end of the day, if I think there's somebody that's going to be good for Iowa, then I'm going to tell my voters that there's someone who is good for Iowa. And also in that last quote, we forgot, or at least I forgot to bring out the fact that DeSantis got a lot of the legislators in the Iowa state uh, legislator. Uh, that's, that's not huge. I mean, they probably don't have the largest name recognition, but also it means that he has extra people, you know, out there on the stump forum, extra people telling, hey, we need to get somebody in there that's a little bit different than Trump. So there are a few more advocates he has on the ground there, and that could have an effect going into January here. But Trump has also built out his ground game a lot. It's a lot more efficient now from what I'm understanding than in 2016 when he kind of just threw it all together. They actually have an idea of what's going on. They have ballot harvesting operations in the works. So 
we'll see if all this work from DeSantis can overcome the wall that Trump has obviously built in Iowa and some of the other first contender states like New Hampshire and South Carolina. Then again, I think South Carolina is going to go to Nikki Haley. I mean, I, maybe I'm a little biased. Maybe I, maybe I just want Trump out of there, but uh, I think that's pretty darn likely. If it's going to any non-Trump candidate, it's going to Haley. Let's put it that way. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from Daily Wire. Mystery novelist unravels the real reason young progressives now hate J.K. Rowling. So you may be thinking, Alex, this kind of seems like a pointless article. Why are you throwing this our way? But I thought it was an interesting breakdown. When I read it, I thought there was just a little bit of truth to what this author, this novelist, was saying. Because J.K. Rowling was the feminist who had a lot of attention because of her work, because of her social beliefs, because of her stances. A lot of people looked up to her. I mean, she made Dumbledore gay after the fact and kind of just retconned it in. So she was obviously caring about some of these social movements, and she wasn't afraid to be vocal about it. And as a person who wrote one of the most popular kids' stories, and even arguably stories, there she had some weight. She was able to throw it around a little bit. But then when she came out, against uh, men claiming to be women going into uh, biological women's spaces, locker rooms, sports, things like that. She spoke up, and then she got a lot of hate for it. So now the people who used to love her have turned on her just a little bit. And it's an interesting phenomenon, and this novelist has some interesting points about it. Quote, mystery novelist Daniel Freeman took to X on Saturday to explain why so many young progressives, many of whom have grown up reading and loving the Harry Potter series, have grown so angry with author J.K. Rowling in recent years. On the surface, many claim to be upset with her insistence on protecting sex-based rights and access, particularly for women, to single-sex spaces and to trans-right activists that makes Rowling a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, or TERF, but Friedman's theory is that the anger is rooted a bit deeper than that, end quote. I know I'm leaving you with a little bit of a cliffhanger. Oh, wait, hold on, what is he going to say? But I want to point this one out because, like I said, she has come out on the side of the biological women who feel as though their spaces are being infringed by non-biological women. This is a hard line in the sand that she's drawn and a lot of people have drawn. I mean, for a lot of the social movement with the uh, transgender kind of sphere, a lot of people have been willing to let it go. Like, okay, hey, if you want to identify as you want to identify, go right ahead. We live in a world where we can tolerate people doing something different and going out there and expressing themselves in a different manner. But it's when you start trying to infringe upon the 100% codified sexes and the spaces that they have solely for themselves, when you start trying to shift your own sex or gender and then take advantage of some of the benefits of some of those other spaces that have been left there for that particular sex, that's when a lot of people started to get outraged. And the question is, are we going to accept that change or not? Are we going to completely upend things in order to allow them into those spaces? Or are we going to create special spaces for transgender athletes, so on and so forth? And J.K. Rowling came down on the side of, hey, we need to keep women's spaces women and women only. And we need to keep male spaces male, even though she doesn't directly say that, you know, based on the way that she's framing her 
argument. That is what she's saying, even though she's more talking about women because she, you know, is more of a feminist, obviously. So that is a really crucial question. She came down on the wrong side for these activists. Quote, the reason a lot of young progressives are so mad at J.K. Rowling is that they read the books as kids and they thought they were Harry or Hermione, but they grew up into people like Percy or Dolores Umbridge or Cornelius Fudge or Rita Skeeta. Freeman began naming characters who either actively deny reality, reality or dutifully tattle on friends, neighbors, and even family members who refuse to do the same. And now they know it. And on some level, they are ashamed. End quote. And so this is the idea that the movement has gone so far. These people that want acceptance for their trans identity, they've gone so far as to tell other people what they can and cannot be called. They are demanding that other people accept their version of reality that doesn't line up with the normal uh, framing of reality. And then they are trying to use authority, you know, authority figures or even just authorities outside of them. Like, think about, oh, well, well, what about uh, the who? The who says that this is okay, and you need to listen to the who, that we need to affirm transgender rights. We need to affirm the people who say they're transgender, otherwise it increases suicide. Those sort of appeals to authority with uh, a little bit of guilt writing in there. Like, if you don't accept who I am exactly as I say I am, then that could cause me distress, and that's not okay. Or using administrative bodies like uh, HR departments or school administrations to actively force people to use the pronouns that the person who's using the authority figure to enforce this says that they are. And this is where a lot of the issue comes. I, like I said, I think a lot of people would be totally okay with allowing somebody else to have a different worldview and say, ah, oh, I'm this, this, and this. And if you want to be nice and you don't want to be rude and you want to have a conversation with them, you will use the pronouns that they want. Uh, some people would say if it becomes too ridiculous, no. But in general, people will because people aren't terrible, terrible human beings who just want to offend people on purpose. But it's when you start to use the branches of authority, the different limbs of these institutions that you're attending or that you work in in order to force people to accept something that they don't believe is true. That's where a lot of people have an issue. And that's where this author is making the connection, which is these people are using the branches of power, just like an Umbridge, just like a Cornelius Fudge, just like a Percy, in order to enforce their worldview and feel maybe a little bit better about themselves for being accepted, even if it's done in a forcible manner. And what the author's also getting at is that while people can have their own beliefs about what's going on, if it doesn't line up with reality, expecting other people to accept your reality is going to get you nowhere. And if these people who have read these Harry Potter books, you know, they see these characters and are like, oh, I'm turning into this character, then, you know, they're kind of resentful. Now, I don't necessarily think it goes that far. I think on maybe a deep subconscious level, that's the case even then. I don't know that people actively read the Harry Potter books and like, oh, am I more like a Harry or am I more like an Umbridge? I don't know. I don't think that people are that introspective. They read them to enjoy them. But maybe there are those people, maybe on a subconscious level, they're seriously having uh, that debate with themselves. So I think there's an interesting, they talk about Umbridge a lot. And Umbridge is a character, let's be clear, I never read the books. So Umbridge is a character that's featured a good amount in the what, I believe it's the fourth movie, if I'm not mistaken. It's Order of the Phoenix, I'm pretty sure, but I, I could be wrong on that one. But she's featured a lot. 
and a lot of people don't like her. So this is one comparison that uh, I think needs a little bit further expanding you know, from the author using his words. Quote, Dolores Umbridge, the bureaucrat sent by the Ministry of Magic to rein in Professor Dumbledore, the headmaster of the uh, and one of the truly powerful people who is unafraid to speak the truth, behaved almost exactly as Fudge did. Umbridge insists that the students do not need to learn magical defense because nobody is going to attack them. Every time Harry protests, Umbridge punishes punishes him sadistically. Friedman added, she refused to tolerate any evidence of the truth that conflicts with her ideology and zealously prosecutes heretics who speak against her beliefs. You can see the connection that he's trying to get at there. You can see what he's trying to say. People that don't accept the worldview of people who identify as transgender. They are evil. They are bigoted. They are hateful. They are trying to harm them. They are causing violence towards them. You can see where he's trying to make that connection there. Quote, Friedman's conclusion was simple. 20 years ago, Umbridge, who zealously believes in the righteousness of her ideology and in the face of increasing evidence to the contrary, attempts to suppress that evidence and punish those who present it rather than changing her beliefs probably read as a right-wing figure. But today, she's the perfect model of a woke bureaucrat, end quote. And I think that, one, that's very, very true, that there were lots of, lots of right-wing fascist kind of ideas with the Ministry of Magic, and you can read into those what you want. I don't want to go any further with that one, because YouTube will be mad. But those were definitely the attended illusions and yet now it seems to portray one other side of the aisle. Now, I, I do want to put a buffer in here, which is not every person that identifies as transgender, not every person that holds this worldview is so, I don't want to say militant, but they're they're not so insistent on other people accepting them. They're, I've met a whole number of them throughout my years that they're like, hey, just let me do me and you do you, and there you go. As long as they're not directly trying to interfere in other people's lives and force somebody else to do something, say something that they don't believe, then it's not a problem. But the small vocal minority that is very militant about it, very insistent that everybody accept their worldview, those are the ones that are going to cause more social strife going forward. And, you know, at the end of the day, you could compare them to an umbrage or a fudge. And I think Friedman's getting to something here. He's maybe a little bit over the top, but, you know, he is an author, and that's what they do. They, they tend to go a little bit above and beyond. All right, so let's jump to our final article that comes from the American Prospect. Student debt relief is a narrow path. So, obviously, Biden said that he was going to relieve the debt of a lot of the people who are voting for him, a lot of the younger voters who are feeling crushed by the student debt plans that they took on and are having to deal with in every single day or every single month. The interest payments are too large or during COVID there was a pause and they stopped paying and then they kind of got out of the habit of paying. There are lots of different paths that have led here to a point where student debt relief is a issue for a large majority of uh, ex-college students, and there are a few different paths forward, and the education department has proposed a few different ones, and now it kind of just feels like I'm basically using the same language, so let me just read the quote for you. Quote, the department has proposed four different provisions of debt relief. Borrowers, and yes, sorry, I'll pause here. It's a longer quote, so stick with me. We're going to add some context here and there, but it's a pretty long quote. 
quote, borrowers who have federal student loan balances that are higher than the original principal amount because of compounded interest would have them reset to the principal threshold. So if you took out a $25,000 loan and you've been paying it off, but now because of compounding interest, it's $27,000, it will be reset back down to the $25,000. So, uh, you know, a little bit of something, something. The question will be, is all the interest payments that you've done so far going to go towards that or is it just going to be oh reset to twenty five thousand? you have to start over again i think there's a little bit more nuance there because it says the th- principal threshold so if that means that at the end of the day it's going to be the same principal but the interest isn't tacked on then you're actually still spending a lot of money on that loan you still put in a lot of payments towards the interest that aren't going to be counted in the future Uh, There's another one, which is borrowers who have been paying for 25 years or more will have their balances fully forgiven. Borrowers whose loans were for career training programs at schools and did not deliver gainful employment would have their balances waived. And those who are eligible for debt forgiveness through existing programs but never signed up for that relief would be granted access to that forgiveness. If you think of this as a system, these elements make up a lot make a lot of sense if applied on an ongoing basis. That would mean that student loans would have a 25-year term, that borrowers would effectively be automatically enrolled in forgiveness programs, and that balances could not exceed the original principal as long as all payments were made, and that nobody would have to pay for enrolling in a worthless education program. End quote. So I think that the last one is very interesting because uh, people wouldn't have to pay for enrolling in a worthless education program. My question would be, and you know, hear me out here, shouldn't you know whether it's worthless or not? So let me lay out a scene for you. You run a small business. You make ice cream. You make soft serve ice cream. It's some of the best soft serve ice cream in the town, 100%. And you're saying, hey, you know, I want a new soft serve machine. I want to have it so that I can do twists. Ooh, fancy, fancy. And then you do some research and you find a machine that says it can do twists. And you're like, okay, cool, I'll just order it. And then you order it, it comes and it can't do twists. Is it the fault of the buyer for saying it can do twists or that it could have done twists in the past, but it can't now? Like it has the nozzle for it, but the the twist doesn't actually work. Or is that on you for not going and doing the research and going and seeing the machine and actually testing it out? I think you can make valid arguments for either one. But my question is, with these student loan programs, shouldn't students also do a little bit of research about what the likelihood of getting a job from one of these educational or student, uh, well, the way they frame it here, they're called career training. So wouldn't a person have to do a little bit of research into those career trainings before they take out a loan in order to actually go to classes. I mean, you're making an investment. So when you make an investment, do you just willy-nilly throw money into it? I mean, let's be clear. I've done that in the past, and I have lost a lot of money from doing that. I didn't look at the fundamentals of a company. I didn't do all my research, and I've lost a good chunk of change on one company in particular from doing that. The other ones, I've done a little bit of research, or I know they have a good track record in the past, and, you know, I threw my money in there. They've, you know, either stayed the same or yielded a good return. So my point is, when you make an investment, especially something that is an investment in your future, your future career, like a career training program, shouldn't you be doing it for 
something that you know is going to have a return when you're putting down that much money in order to go do it. So when they say, ah, yes, these programs that don't actually yield real-life results, real careers out of them, that these students should have their loans forgiven, I I do empathize because apparently the career training wasn't enough. But also, shouldn't you have done research to know that some of those career training programs, or maybe you could find a better career training program that does offer lots of opportunities? I think that's an interesting one. The year over 25 years of uh, paying down their balance and not paying it off, uh, I... I understand it. I, I guess you don't want people to be burdened for so long. I, I'm pretty sure that would be the thinking, and that sounds really empathetic and nice, but also, um, hello, you, you took out the loan. Why should, after 25 years, you just be able to say, oh, no more? Because if this is an ever-going program, then people are just going to take out loans, pay the minimum ballot each month, and then wait for 25 years, and it will just be forgiven. I mean, like, come on. We're, we're setting up weird incentive structures with all of these different routes, and I don't think it's the way to go about it personally. I think we could actually readdress this by having a new system where colleges take on the loans themselves. So therefore, they encourage, uh, or sorry, the government would encourage these co- these companies or these colleges that could act as companies to, one, lower their prices so more people will be able to afford to go there. So the loans won't be so strenuous. They won't burn people forever. And also, then these programs that students are taking out loans for, if you make, have a program that doesn't actually allow students to pay back the loan that they took from your institution in order to go there. You're not getting that money back. So in order to make sure that these career training programs are even better, hey, guess what? If it, the loan for them is insured by the college, they're going or they are the uh, underwriter, then the college is going to say, okay, we need this program to be great so these people can pay us back for the education that we gave them. So I think there's a, a few different ways to actually address this rather than is being proposed. But, you know, Biden has fallen short. That's the main message of that article. And there's a few different paths forward that he's trying to put together. And I think some people are going to love it and other people are going to absolutely hate it. But the truth of the matter is Biden hasn't been able to follow through on his main claim that he'll forgive a lot of student debt. And that's going to hurt him going into 2024, especially among young voters. He made a big pledge and he wasn't able to stick to it quite yet. All right, so let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Parade Pets. Mini Pig playing with her pet duck shows how she has dual personalities. So, you know, everyone has that one thing that is really comforting to them that they really want to always have around them or close to them when they're at home. Quote, lots of kids have a favorite toy or blanket that they love to bring with them everywhere, but they have a special bond, and it's adorable. And apparently pigs do the same thing. At least this pig does, end quote. And, you know, her name's Roxy, but Roxy tends to be a little more like a toddler with these sort of things, you know, acting one way one second and another way another second. Quote, the duck, while it is her pet, isn't real. It's a stuffed duck, and Roxy loves to play sweet, sweetly with it and let out all her energy, too. In the first clip, we see Roxy taking a nap, and in the second, we see her with the duck in her mouth as she shakes her head from left to right very quickly, end quote. So you can see the two sides that Roxy's got going on here. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.